Welcome to the Cross-Border Interview Podcast, a podcast about getting out from behind the keyboard and just talking. Each week, we invite a guest or two to sit down and talk about their life and their work. I'm Christopher Brown, your host, and this is the Cross-Border Interview Podcast featuring the Reverend Michael Corey. Michael, I want to thank you very much for doing this. Um, we, like I said, I won't take much of your time, but the question sure. I, I want to ask first, and I think uh, I usually ask a certain question to all my guests, but for you, it's going to be a little bit different. What does faith mean to Michael Korn? Well, um, for me, faith is a, a dialogue, I suppose, a conversation. I mean, it, it is by its nature, it has the irrational implicit within it really doesn't it because uh i've had people say to me prove to me argue, argue me into the christian faith and i'm saying, no i'm not going to do that first i don't think you're serious but anyway i can give you lots of arguments but ultimately it, it is a leap of faith you have to have faith and and um it's different from from proof if we could prove the existence of god then there wouldn't be a faith element involved so there has to be trust there has to be a leap uh, there has to be something beyond the, the rational and the intellectual. Uh, but it, it's evolved for me over the years. Um, I think at one point it was less faith and commitment to an ideology that was cloaked in faith, which is not to criticize anyone else. It was me. Um, but in the past seven or eight years, it's become very much a relationship. And um, as I say, very much a dialogue. I find it interesting because when researching this, I've read some of your books. I, I, I've done a deep dive into your uh, story. And what I find interesting is even those on the polar opposite side of the religious uh, 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 context of atheism, Stephen Fry and you have a mutual admiration for each other. So can people of faith still have admiration for people who don't have faith in today's society? Like yourself, well, should, Stephen I mean, Fry? Well, Stephen's a particular example. I mean, he's an extraordinary man, and um, my admiration for him, uh, and and so many people's admiration for him, of course, is great. And I think um, people sometimes get Stephen wrong because he's not angry. There's no hatred in him at all. I think he's deeply hurt that Christianity in the past 30 years has taken on such a homophobic flavor. And... I mean, I don't want to speak for him, but I, I mean, he did say to me once he had a great love for the Church of England growing up. There was a gentleness and a kindness. and There was a certain homophobic teaching if you really dug deeply. But it, it simply wasn't applied. It wasn't mentioned. And, and um, so that's what's hurt him very deeply. But there should be. But I'm not Pollyanna. I'm not going to pretend on social media there are many people who have no faith who I, I, I know they, they like me and respect me, but there are others who... And it's part of the problem of the sort of the, the new atheism, this idea that you have to be as rude and insulting as possible. It's almost part of your lack of faith, which is terribly wrong. And uh, yes, and there should be, I happen to believe that God's love and kindness is within all of us, even if we don't believe in God. Many atheists, of course, would disagree with me on that. But I knew Christopher Hitchens a little. Um, my first job was at the New Statesman in Britain in the early 1980s. Again, someone I respected very deeply. And they're just ordinary people who don't believe. Um, I think we have four children. 
I would say that um, one of them is probably an atheist. Two of them don't really know. Uh, my oldest friend, I'd say, is an atheist. Um, you know, there's... Um, it, re it, it really shouldn't be an issue. And it's a great shame that it has it. And I, bl I blame, I don't blame any one side because there are conservative Christians, some of the most hateful people I've ever come across, I have to say. And past seven years or so, I, I've met many of them <laughs> indirectly. And they're on one side and, and you do have some very angry militant atheists on the other. But in between all sorts of people, faith or no faith, who, who are simply decent, good people who want to dialogue or not and have no dislike for anyone. Well, you, you mentioned something that I want to talk about a little bit is social media. Social media, I find today, has been the rise of uh, the divide of what we see in uh, one side versus the other side. Because if you do not like something and you mention that on social media, you will have 100, 200 people comment. And I've looked at your past tweets and it seems that you will call out someone for potentially a social conservative view and you will see the right or the, uh, the religious right come after you in a negative uh, attack, which would not have been around in the 1990s. It's a very interesting point. I mean, I look at it in two ways. I think that social media has revealed and exposed what was already there, but it's also empowered and developed what wasn't there. So there were always people who felt this way, but now they have a platform. But it's also developed and grown uh, a certain psychology, uh, the way you deal with those who oppose you. And it's not just about one side. Yes, I'm, I'm appalled sometimes by Christian conservatives and social conservatives and, and the way they can be so hateful. But equally, you know, I've seen the other side at work, and um, just just yesterday, there was an arch social conservative who tweeted something very unpleasant, and you know, with all due respect, misspelt and irrational. But then someone wrote back and called her an, an effing moron, who is probably a bad mother. And I wrote to this person on Twitter, and I said, "Could you please delete this tweet?" Uh, disagree vehemently, that's fine, but don't do this. Treat people as you want to be treated. And instead of them saying, it was a woman, instead of her saying, um, okay, maybe you got a point, she started arguing. How, how dare you tell me what to do and I, I'll say what I want. And I said, well, fine, you do that then, but please don't do it on my page. And But there are other times, and I do, I, I'm very careful if, if I see someone in support of me being very abusive. Um, I, I've actually half a dozen times I've said to people, please don't, and they've apologized. So I do try to make it in my very small, insignificant way, a better platform because I've met wonderful people through, through Twitter. I've had marvelous conversations. I've had my mind changed. I've changed other people. So this idea there's, there's a slight fashion now of people saying, oh, I'm getting off Twitter because I just think it's this. Yeah, of course it is. I mean, life can be like that. What do you think a battlefield is like, for goodness sake? But you can actually try to make it better. And, and people can be a bit precious about it. So a CBC journalist recently, who I don't actually don't even know who he is, but you know, I'm coming off Twitter, it's become this and it's become that. Well, I can assure you, well, I can't assure you, but if you saw the abuse that I receive and the accusations and the libels, yeah, I block some of them. I ignore some of them, expose some of them, but I also hear from huge numbers of absolutely lovely people. 
Um, you you opened up a can of worms here, and I, I want to talk about it for a second. Uh, in 2014-15, you came out, you officially uh, supported same-sex marriage, and you did get called every name in the book. From, <laughs> yeah. And uh, I, I kind of uh, want to ask this question, and I've never heard this question be asked to you. You got the same uh, sort of attacks that gay people got get when they come out to potentially their religious family, oh, you're a pedophile, you're an adulterer, you're, you're immoral. So was it, you're coming out in some sense of, hey, I'm leaving the church and I'm becoming more of a socially acceptable uh, towards a homosexuality? Oh, look, <clears throat> gay people get far worse. I would never make the comparison. Um, you imagine being a kid uh, in a non-urban area, perhaps, who comes out to a religious family. I mean, it's not as bad now as it was, but it can still be very bad. Thrown out of the house, disowned, called every name, you're in hell. Um, even outside of religious families, there was a, a time when, uh, I mean, my parents weren't religious, and we're talking about a few years ago now. They're very loving. I think if I had said that I was gay, they would have loved me. It would have been very difficult for them. But no, I would never compare my experience. I'm, I'm a straight white man, and I have my own home. So... Um, but it did give me a glimpse into what people go through because I really have always prided myself on being rather worldly. I've seen a lot of things, nothing can shock me. I didn't know how much hatred there was. When I had that social conservative position, I know I hurt people and did a lot of damage, but if you really look back generally at what I said, you know, on my TV show, we'd always have leaders of the gay community treated with the utmost respect many friends in the gay community. You had Kathleen Wynne, the first openly gay premier now, but at the time, cabinet minister on your show. Many times. And I I defended, no, I mean, I I wouldn't allow any homophobic comments to be made. And um, I I supported civil union. I supported, and this is the interesting thing. Back then, I, I supported civil unions. I supported full inheritance rights, full protection under the law for, for employment and housing. Uh, all this sort of thing. But that relatively moderate position, I, I oppose marriage, that relatively moderate position did more harm because it was coming from someone who, I mean, I'm not a scholar, but I'm not a fool. When some fundamentalist is screaming anti-gay comments, well, whatever. But when someone of a certain education says, no, I think civil union is absolutely acceptable, but marriage should be confined to, to a mid-sex couple, well, it gives it a certain intellectual veneer. It gives it a certain credibility. And I wasn't screaming. I was discussing. And so in that way, I did more harm. I did but more harm. at the harm. same time, and I apologize to interrupt here, but at the same time, it was the in, in the ni- late 1990s, even early 2000s, the majority of people believed that. Yeah. And you know, the Obamas and Clintons of the world, I wasn't enormously out of step, but I was still arguing. I mean, for me, it went on I mean, because I didn't, you know, certainly it's not even seven years ago that I changed all this. And, um, but yeah, my, my arguments were, I mean, I made the occasional comment. And I think I discussed the issue quite a lot, but what I actually said was not that extreme. And I remember being criticized even then because I said that civil unions the nature of marriage, we should have civil unions for, for same-sex couples. And there were people who disagreed with that on, on the Christian right. But it was, again, I don't want to caricature myself. On the abortion issue, for example, I never believed in criminalization. 
I wanted legislation back then that would have said illegal after the third month. Um, and, and I was people in the anti-abortion movement. I, I kept saying to them, please stop using the word Holocaust and stop using the word murder. This is unfair and it's wrong. So it, I wasn't, I was certainly not on the extreme of those movements, but once again, I had a platform and I have a certain intelligence. So I was arguing the position and, and in a way, I'm not here to beat myself up, but I was causing in a way more harm. But, uh, and on the abortion issue in particular, it's very interesting because I was still like abortion rates to drop as many other people would. And I've said this several times now on social media and in my, in my columns, uh, freely available contraceptives, modern set set in every school, empower women, eradicate poverty, um, affordable socialized daycare, um, in the States, socialized medicine, uh, enforce, uh, payments from fathers, abortion rates will plummet, but choice is very, very important. That really would lower abortion rates. The, the, the anti-abortion movement, they don't care about that. They don't actually care about that. They simply want to control women. Um, but on, on the, on the gay issue, um, it's, it seems such a long time ago now. Um, what I did experience did shock me. I thought there were a lot of people in the Christian world who almost regrettably said that their inter interpretation of scripture led them to believe that, that homosexuality was unacceptable. And they didn't say it with any relish and they tried to be loving, but this was their view. Okay, disagree with that, but it's a position. That's not what I encountered. I, I had no idea how hateful people were and also how it was almost the only issue that seemed to matter to them. One that Jesus never mentions, apparently is the most important issue in the world for some Christians. Well, and, and I'm glad you mentioned uh, the Bible and how many times it was mentioned because we find, I, f I find, and I live in Alberta and uh, I used to live in Northern Alberta, which was a very religious area, that some parts of the Bible will be taken verbatim and then right. others will be sort of uh, uh, looked over because it doesn't uh, address their thought mind. How, how do Catholics and the Roman Catholics and even Christians comprehend some parts of the Bible with not really thinking about the other parts? Well, I mean, it's a very complex issue. Um, it's quite fascinating. I, I, I think, I'm just going to close the door. I think that the view on sexuality, very spe specific homosexuality, I think is more sociological than theological. And I think there are a lot of people who use what they think is theology to justify their views. And it's, they're not always hateful, but they're uncomfortable with something. And so they have to try and uh, build an argument from scripture uh, to support that. What they call the gotcha verses, there's, there's a handful of them. Homosexuality is never mentioned in, in the Gospels. Paul does refer to it two or three times, but if you, really, if you read Paul, these are things you can't always get. I try to on Twitter, but sometimes you simply can't. Uh, Paul is referring generally to straight men using boys, often as pagan initiation. If you, I mean, Romans 1, I've God, I spent so long studying Romans. Um, quite clearly, the, the numbers that Paul uses, the, the references, the list, he's drawing a direct comparison with how in Roman and Greek pagan rituals, people were initiated. And part of this was by sex with a, with a young boy, a catamite, if you like. You try to explain that to someone who's screaming at about Adam and Eve and Adam and Steve, it doesn't always work very well. Adam 
the Adam in Hebrew is earth creature. In fact, there are two creation stories in Genesis, and and he's, he's gender or he Adam is gender free, uh, and. Sodom is not about homosexuality. It's quoted elsewhere in scripture, and it refers to the sin of, of, of disliking, rejecting the stranger. The, the, the reference to uh, man not lying with man and so on. Well, read that entire list of what is prohibited. This is an ancient text for an ancient people. It doesn't apply, if we apply that to the modern, well, no one, the most orthodox Jewish people don't apply that to, to modern living. Some of it they do. Uh, although they're, they're actually, even though they have this literalism, they're far less strident about homosexuality than, um, than some Christians are. So it's been, oh, and there is one, I've written about this too, there is one reference, and it's not proven, but um, of course we have David and Jonathan. But it's when Jesus, the centurion goes to Jesus and says, my slave, my servant, he's terribly ill, I love him very much. <clears throat> and uh, I know you don't have to come into my house for him to be, to be cured, um, is, is in the Catholic Mass, and and, uh, and Jesus says, you know, he's cured. Your faith is greater than the people here with me, greater than the Jewish people. Your faith is extraordinary, and there is a very strong theory that, um, and the Greek that is used, that that was talking about a, a, a loving relationship, a same-sex loving relationship that was beyond the Platonic. Uh, plus, Roman soldiers were often mocked by the Jews of the time in the first century, as you'd mock anyone who has power over you, how are we going to do this? Well, they go back to their, bar their barracks in uh, Caesarea Maritima, and you know what they get up to, you know, yeah, we know about them. It is quite likely that those listening would have thought that this man was talking about his lover. Now that's not proven. I would never say that is absolute, but I think there's, a, there's very strong evidence behind that. So the only possible reference made to homosexuality in, in the Gospels is one that in fact could lead us to say that Jesus affirmed a same-sex relationship. He didn't mention it at all. People say, well, he didn't mention bestiality. He didn't mention this. He didn't mention that. that that's, I'm sorry, that simply won't hold because um, he does talk about sex. When an adulteress is brought to him, he's indifferent, you know, go. It, it's, don't be hypocrites. He, it's a non-issue. Uh, I think the central theme of the New Testament is love and understanding. Uh, and I'm not going to pretend that the Bible is a, an incredible handbook as to why equal marriage and full gay equality is wonderful, but nor do I believe it opposes. And it's such a small issue within the text of Scripture, 800, 900,000 words, that people will obsess about that. And yet the central theme, which is love and forgiveness and understanding and helping the poor and the marginalized, that seems almost like it's a commentary they don't take any notice of. They really have turned it completely upside down. So you left the church when Pope Benedict uh, was in... Uh, no, was the, no, just after. Um, the Pope Francis. Yeah, Pope Francis had just come in. And um, I mean, it was beginning before that. Pope Francis seems to be more uh, bringing the church more to a left-leaning stance. There still is some fundamental things that he believes that uh, will not change, but you see him being more embraceive of the LGBT community. Yeah, do you think that's the church moving, or do you think that's him trying to size uh, uh, trying to change the church within? Well, that's a good question. Actually, I wrote, uh, 
I'm not sure when this podcast is going out, but just today, end of um, September the 25th, I have a piece in The Critic, which is a wonderful magazine I highly recommend in the UK, but it's online too, about this issue. Um, what is the church? Well, there's church teaching, and then there are um, millions and millions and millions of, of, of Roman Catholics. I haven't spoken to them all, but I can, I, with some experience, I can tell you, if you spoke to most Roman Catholics and said, what do you think about gay marriage? They would say, yeah, whatever. <laughs> I don't care. And they don't, they might know what, what church teaching is, but they certainly wouldn't. And that applies to contraception. They may be a little bit more conservative on abortion, but not enormously so. Um, no, I mean, Catholics aren't that informed generally of their faith, and they tend to be as progressive as non-Catholics around them. Canada's 44% Catholic, I think. Um, it's, it's not... Uh, so the church moving... Well, church teaching is still quite severe on this issue. Uh, but Pope Francis has, on three major occasions now, has said, um, God loves you as a gay person. You're welcome. Um, let's move on. But the teaching hasn't changed. And a lot will depend on the new pope. Um, I hope and pray it's a liberal progressive pope, but that's not guaranteed. There's a great deal of hypocrisy within the church. Um, between 30% and half and 50% of all Catholic clergy are gay. And I'm not saying that to be, to make any particular conclusion, but I'm not trying to be rude in any way. Not that it should be uh, anything that is pejorative, but all of the surveys, all of the books come to this conclusion. I know a number of men, half a dozen, who left the Roman Catholic priesthood, who are either now Anglican clergy or they're not clergy at all, and they're gay. And the things they've told me, it was just, it's almost laughable. Um, I don't want to give any names, but someone recently, who was a priest, Catholic priest, he's now, he's, he's, he left. There was a quite high profile bishop and he said, I had a relationship with that bishop. You know, uh, this bishop is, it's not that the man is enormously homophobic, but he's giving the line, the church line about homosexuality. And, and so for the church to change its teaching, there's a lot of gay clergy who will be uncomfortable because are they going to be outed? What's going to happen? Um, I think, it, will it happen? It's going to be difficult because the, church, the Catholic church has this idea of natural law. And I think it's a twisting of it, but it would say that, Marriage has to be procreative as its norm. Um, you have to, the, the couples have to be complementary, they have to be opposite. I don't think these things don't have to scrutiny, but it would take a, a big change and it would alienate the conservatives in the church who are not the majority in numbers, but they're very active and influential. So it may change, I don't know. Evangelicals, that's much easier to change because uh, it's individual interpretation but you have people who are more conservative generally. Uh, I see it changing. I see some churches questioning things. Younger people, this is a problem for, for conservatives. Outside of those who've been strictly homeschooled and, and maybe rather confined, kids, kids today, <laughs> they, they, and I say it with our children, they, they just don't comprehend home, beyond homophobia. They don't comprehend what, why isn't marriage between... Why do you have to be man and woman to be married? Why? Why? They just don't get it. And, and when those, and a lot of kids in evangelical churches will have that view. They'll have gay friends. They, they, there's not a problem here. 
how then do those churches deal with that issue? I, we will see changes there. You left the Roman Catholic Church in uh, 2014, 2015, like I said, and uh, uh, became a deacon at an Anglican church in the Niagara region. Well, um, there's a bit of a, I mean, that's not You went to school, you went to Trinity College. You then yeah, left. I left in 2014. Um, two years later, I decided I would do a Master's of Divinity. Do you mind me asking why? Why did you choose that? Is it you wanted to become a deacon? Had you always wanted to be a deacon? Or no, 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 no. I still want to be a football. I still want to play for Tottenham, but it's not going to happen. I know it's not going to happen now. Um, if you would have said to me, you'll be ordained in the Anglican Church. No, never, ever. I mean, I've had sort of fantasies about... Maybe I'll be a vet in in, in Yorkshire or, or a, <laughs> a detective. No, I mean, it was never even considered. I left and I began slowly, gradually to worship as an Anglican. And a couple of people said it to me, have you ever thought about ordination? And I said, are you kidding me? Um, but they kept on sort of prodding and I kept thinking. And after about a year, I then I did apply and I was accepted. But I thought and prayed about it, and it's, it's, it's not right. And I went away for another year, and then I decided I would try it. And I started at Trinity, University of Toronto. And even through that period, it was a lot of growth and challenge. But I continued, and then I got my MDiv, and then I was ordained. And uh, so, no, I never thought that would happen. There were some huge influences on me who were ordained clergy in England. Uh, but... And I'm so delighted. There were many times when I thought I wouldn't keep on with it because um, it was difficult and I had plenty of work. I didn't need anything. Um, it was challenging for some people around me. I, mean, I don't want to go into too much detail there, but it was. Um, Are you a better man because you went through that those three years? And I hope I'm a better person every single day. Uh, I learned a great deal. Better, I'm different. I'm different. Understandable. Um, for those who are listening and might not know, um, and even myself, I'm a little uh, blurry on what an Anglican, Anglican is compared to a Roman Catholic, because when some people look at religion, they might think all religion's the same. So in your words, what is an Anglican? Uh, what, what is the gospel or the teachings of the Anglican church? Well, we're different from Catholics. Uh, we have much better catering. And, uh, and the sherry is deaf. Well, I miss it. how do I summarize that? The Anglican communion, <clears throat> which includes the Anglican Church of Canada, the Church of England, the Episcopalian Church in the United States, and many, many others, largely where the British Empire was um, and the Anglo-Saxon world, but not confined to that in other parts of the world too. Um, I know an Anglican priest who's uh, from Syria, for example. And it's a product of the Reformation. It is in that way a Protestant church because it grew out of the movement that protested against Rome. But it's a Protestant church that has evolved to, do, to embrace both the Catholic and Reformed wing of Christianity. And I found that this Protestant church has enabled me to be the Catholic I want to be. So you can have, you can believe in, in sacramental theology and you can believe in the more traditional Catholic view of religion. 
but with very or with liberal progressive social views. Uh, the Church of England developed, um, in many ways, it was a political construct, but it became theological very quickly. And certainly under Edward VI and then Elizabeth in the later part of the 16th century and then the early 17th. And over the centuries, it's developed into um, uh, a church with bishops. So it has authority, there's authority over me, but also a great deal of respect for the individual, for autonomy. Um, we, and we have a breadth of, of view uh, on, on belief, uh, a high level of education. We believe in, in, uh, in people understanding and knowing. Um, so it, it, I mean, it, it's a via media, it's a middle way. It's neither reformed Protestant, nor Roman Catholic, but we do have within our church, Anglo-Catholic, very high church people. And, um, and I love that diversity. You know, you can find churches within Anglicanism will satisfy your need. Uh, and it's the, the Anglican church, Church of England, at least, accepted contraception in 1930, uh, relatively early. Roman Catholic church still doesn't. Uh, the church will listen to the arguments of the time while never abandoning its, the basic theology of the gospel. With the uh, new normal of COVID-19, the pandemic, mm. uh, people across Canada and around the world are finding themselves isolated. They're finding themselves cut off from uh, uh, their friends or family because they don't want to get sick. Have you found in your uh, parish people coming to the church to find a sense of community again? Well, we have closed our church. We open in a couple of weeks' time. Um, the ones that opened very early were the evangelical and Catholic churches. I actually had great concerns about that. I think it was too early. Uh, Anglican, United, Presbyterian, Lutheran, many others, we decided to wait. I think I do think we were more responsible. We're beginning to open. So most of what I've done since the end of March has been online. Bible study, prayer, discussion, take phone calls from people, emails. Um, so most of the people I've spoken to in that way have already been church members, but they certainly need conversation and company. Outside of that, what I, and beyond COVID in a way, what I have found is that, and I see this on social media um, or by email, I, I write about generally two columns a week, Star, Globe, McLean's, Critic, um, TV or whatever, and actually 80% of them were have some sort of faith basis to them. And it is staggering how many people write to me and say, I didn't know Christianity was that. Is that really what the church teaches? And they're not hostile. In fact, they want to know. Uh, a few years ago, I spoke to the Broadbent Institute in, I think it was in Edmonton, about the social gospel. Uh, and I'm, in fact, I'm writing a book about this sort of issue now called The Rebel Christ. And it, it's, it's the theory, and I don't think it, I think it's actually the norm, or it should be, that Christianity and the teachings of Jesus are radical. It's not that they're anti-capitalist or socialistic, those terms are anachronistic, that they are revolutionary in the way they respect humanity, they think the, the equality of people. And, and um, anyway, I spoke there, and I was a bit concerned because, oh, golly, how's this going to go down? You know, I got a standing ovation. 
they were absolutely lovely. They, these were social democrats and socialists who were not anti-Christian. I mean, I'm sure, I, I, I would think maybe one or two were, but it seemed pretty much almost everyone there loved the. I mean, it was the party founded by you know Tommy Douglas and so on. And they, so people on the left, uh, people who may have felt that um, the Christians were their enemy, they do rethink when they realize that Christianity is not just white evangelicals and conservative Catholics. And people say, you know, Trump and Christianity. Well, think about black evangelicals. Think about the, the, the Episcopal Church in the United States. Think about liberal Catholics. Joe Biden's a Catholic. And, and so much else that, that, that goes on. Those people on the right are very loud and very organized. And they're numerous. But so are those who disagree with them. But we, we, we don't make such a noise. I mean, it's, it's been said that um, the, uh, the, the noisiest splashing, the greatest noise, is in the shallowest end of the swimming pool. Well, that sounds a little rude, but um, there is a simplistic nature about their arguments. And I've never seen one that is convincing. And as you know, I mentioned earlier, they, there's just no consistency. If you really, if you really care even to take their arguments at face value, if you care about life, if you care about the family, the first thing you should be addressing is economic inequality, gun control. But they don't. You've opened up a can of worms here because uh, I was going to talk about this, but I didn't know if you wanted to, so I was going to let you lead. But you, you mentioned the elephant in the room, Donald Trump down in the States. He has uh, uh, used religion for his political gain. Um, we are finding that more, I'm finding that more conservatives are using the Bible, the religious right to make political gains in their own political careers. Um, is that uh, sustainable in the long run? Or uh, I know there was a candidate for the Democrats who said that religion is not a Republican issue. It's an American issue. It's not a, it's a Democrat and a Republican issue. We can't let them, uh, and I'm paraphrasing here, we can't let them just take over religion as their own. Yeah. Is this sustainable in this world that religion is now a political issue? Well, I think it always has been, and there are platitudes thrown about it. Separation of church and state, and all the, well, William Wilberforce, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Titus Brandsma, Tommy Douglas, Martin Luther King. Um, no, you can't. So, if you're a person of faith, you can't leave that faith somehow in a church. I mean, it, it must inform everything you do. Uh, America is a, a product of the Reformation. This is important to, to realize that in Protestantism and the Reformation hadn't really worked particularly well. In, in Europe, it, it had been pushed, it had made advances into France and Poland, and it lost all of that. So it was pushed into the northern fringe, really. Britain, northern Germany, Scandinavia, the, the Catholic Church took back the rest of the of the continent and it probably would have remained like that but the foundation of the united states of america which became a protestant superpower now you have many catholics there now of course but they've taken a, a similar sensibility exceptionalism is very much a, a, a reformation idea so the last democrat convention faith and god were mentioned so often if that was in canada or in the uk people would just go Golly, what are you doing? It'd be embarrassing. You don't, you've never, even though Britain has a, a state church, you, you never hear this. Labour Party, one, the, the, 
uh, Tony Blair, when the Labour Party was so successful, we don't do God. We don't do God. So the Americans are, are very different. Uh, so within that context, yes, there has to be a campaign to take it back. But Barack Obama was someone of devout Christian faith. Devout Christian faith. No one believes Donald Trump is a Christian. I mean, it's a running joke. No one believes it for a moment. There are, there are some... There are some people, Christians in the U.S., who do think he is. But I've interviewed evangelical leaders in the United States. They know he's not. They're not stupid people. They know he's not, but they have this. I've written about this. They view him as Constantine or Cyrus. They may, may be flawed people. They may not be believers, but they have enabled and empowered us to be who we want to be. So if he goes on about abortion, if he appoints Supreme Court judges who are anti-abortion, um, if he speaks to the March for Life, they will allow him to do anything he wants to do. And there are those who simply deny all the facts about him, but there are others who say, yes, I know he's a fraud. I know his personal views are this and that. But the point is, we now have a man in the White House who will allow us uh, to, to have influence and power. Uh, so it's an appalling abuse and exploitation of religiosity. And it's, it's really very tragic. Uh, but you can't remove God and faith even though, ironically, the separation of church and state from the United States, the Democrats have to try and, and win it back. Even on the Democrat left, there is a strong faith point of view. You know, the, the, there's a radical Christianity in the U.S. that's always been there, as it has been in Canada, too. In Britain, it was always said that the Labour Party owed more to Methodism than to Marx. That was a foundation. Uh, a lot of the people who were in government uh, in 1924 and then again in 1945 in Britain were nonconformist Christians. Uh, uh, Tony Benn, who was probably the most famous um, Labour Party left-wing leader um, until Jeremy Corbyn, uh, but Tony Benn very much had that Christian tradition. Um, I think it's, a, it's, it's wonderful because it also, when the, the Christian left, it's a bulwark against some of the, the viciousness you do see on the hard left sometimes, you know, drifting into anti-Semitism and personal cruelty, and um, that isn't what socialism is. Socialism should be respect for people, not hatred of your enemy. In the last election, the Canadian election, Andrew Scheer was the conservative leader. He was the religious uh, candidate as well. He did make his uh, opinions known on uh, many social issues, and sometimes well, he did not come across the way that he might want to, but uh, he, he carried them. You have come out and uh, called out some former uh, conservative leadership candidates, and they have blocked you on Twitter. One of them, <laughs> one of them is a uh, former leader who might be running in southern uh, Alberta, uh, southern Ontario. Uh, why do you believe that the conservatives believe that religion is the way to win votes in Canada? It's a different party. I came to Canada in 1987. It's not the party of Brown, Mulroney, and Kim Campbell and Joe Clark. Um, Joe, I remember, I don't know Joe Clark really. I've interviewed him a few times. I remember him telling me a story of, um, I mean, he, I think he, he's no longer a Catholic, but he was. He took it seriously. He told me a story of when he asked someone, a hotel receptionist in, Northern, in Belfast, where he could find a Catholic mass. <laughs> and the response was not exactly positive. <laughs> uh, but today, um, 
Look, I don't think Andrew Shear was very clear about his position. I think Andrew Shear, with all due respect, was a man of enormous incompetence, uh, surrounded by people who were equally incompetent. His, his team of advisors, and I almost felt sorry for him. It was like a, just a, a you know, deer caught in the headlights. He didn't know what to do. And instead of saying, these are my views, take them or leave them, he ummed in the yard. Uh, Leslie Lewis, who you mentioned, uh, she ran for leadership. She's a Pentecostal. And um, she... Uh, she presented herself very well, and she's a highly intelligent woman. And she did declare where she stood, but in a way, she, she wasn't clear. And I really think she wasn't pushed. The journalists gave her a pretty easy run of it. They didn't say, well, you, you've opposed the ban on conversion therapy. Let's talk about that in detail. Why do you think conversion therapy is brutal, oppressive, leads to self-harm and suicide? Um, why do you want to stop funding abortion abroad when it often saves the lives of women? You won't march in pride, but surely marching in pride, even a non-Toronto pride, is a, a sign of solidarity with the people who have long been oppressed and frequently still are oppressed. And they just, I, did, I put those in a column, and it was a very respectful and informed column. And some of supporters went after me, quite nastily. One of them said, you're spreading hatred and lies, which, you know, worse things are said all the time to me, but that's a really, I mean, that's, it's simply untrue. And he said it, and I said, well, give me an example. He didn't, but then she liked on Twitter, she liked that comment. And so I wrote to her on Twitter and I said, dear Miss Lewis, you've liked a tweet that says I'm spreading hatred and lies. That's a fairly serious allegation. Could you just explain to me where I've done so? Thank you. And then pretty soon after she blocked me. But I don't think that's the behavior of someone who wants to be an MP and run for leadership of the party. Uh, I don't think the Conservative Party, look, it, it changed the people behind the party. They replicate the Americans. Uh, <clears throat> I don't want to sound, I don't want to polarize the two, but I think if anything, Canadian conservatism looked to the British model, and now it looks to the American. Well, so and I think Aaron O'Toole just came out and said he wants to emulate what Boris Johnson did in the last general election in the UK. So you have a new leader who's looking that way, but at the same time, Boris Johnson might not be the best person. Well, he probably means winning the election. I don't, I'm not sure if Aaron O'Toole really knows what happened in Britain, but he probably means to, to winning so well. But it's one thing when you have Jeremy Corbyn leading a hard left party against you. It's another one when you have Trudeau or maybe Christopher Freeland leading the opposition. The Liberals are a very moderate centrist party, so it's totally different. Um, and Boris Johnson right now in Britain is so, and the incompetence is just frightening. It, what is going on in Britain? I, Conservatives, MPs, my oldest friend is, a, well, anyway, I mean, they're in despair. It's being so badly handled. So for Aaron O'Toole, if that's what he said, Boris Johnson, maybe he meant that the election, because Boris Johnson is, is uh, in huge trouble and he's doing a terrible job. But no, the, the, the Conservative Party here has been very Americanized. Look at some of their media outlets and the things they say and, and the sound bites and the aggression. But part of that also is the Christian vote. Now, the Christian vote in Canada is nothing like the size of that in the US. In the US, it's huge. This country is about 11% evangelical and they're not all conservative. The Catholic vote is very big, but the Catholic vote is generally more liberal than conservative. And I don't, the Catholic right, perhaps, but that's not that big. But you, within the Conservative Party, though, and Leslie Lewis got about 
30% of the vote, and then she got the largest vote in, in some of the races. Um, and I've been writing about this for some time. Andrew Shear won because the combined social conservative vote put him over the edge. Uh, Doug Ford won in Ontario for similar reasons. Now, Doug Ford then abandoned social conservatives. I'll never forgive him for that. But in this case, Erin O'Toole, who I don't think is particularly conservative on these issues, I think he's probably, um, yeah, I don't know him. I know his dad a bit. I used to, used to be on my old TV show. I don't know him. He, he was my former MP. John O'Toole is my former yeah. MPP. Yeah. Well, I think he's probably a, a, a decent man. Um, who has centrist views on these issues, but he's likely being advised by people who are saying be very, very careful because we don't want to alienate those who will really support us and campaign for us. And Leslie Lewis is their champion, and the social conservatives adore her. And she, as I say, she presented herself very, very well. Um, not sure if if that will stand after she's an MP. Our media can be fairly passive, remember. Um, we, this is it's quite difficult, for, even though I've been here a long time now, sometimes I just cringe at ask that question. I mean, don't be rude, but push, push for another answer. That simply isn't, um, uh, but I, I, I don't know. Uh, but then you have the opposite on the, the uh, more fringe media who will just attack for the sake of attacking. And I, I, I mentioned one, and he, they're very popular here in Alberta, the Rebel News media outlet. I know you were part of them for a week and you left, but they well, will attack for the sake I of attacking. I was fired after one day. You um, were fired? I thought you left. <laughs> no, I can't. I mean, I'm not going to claim that nobility. Uh, I work with Ezra at Sun. Yeah. And when he set up Rebel, he said, would you come on board? And I'd already been writing articles and speaking about my new, you know, evolving views. And I said, Ezra, I'm not on brand, you know. And he said, no, we want diversity of opinion. <laughs> so um, they sent a producer to my house and uh, she recorded five little segments with me, each one a few minutes long. And they were very, they weren't political. One was about, I think, the meaning of either Christmas or Easter, I can't remember when it was. One was about Christians in the Middle East, and they were all non-political. And uh, I did those five, and within a day, I had an editorial in the National Post. I still wrote for the Post back then, supporting the sex ed system, the reformed one, in Ontario, and saying that those who opposed it hadn't read it. They don't know what's in it. They're saying things that aren't true. And Ezra uh, telephoned me, to say, you're going to have to let you go. And I said, well, I did tell you. And, um, and, and then I received an email. I couldn't have continued with them anyway. But um, no, I was there for one day and they got rid of me. Um, and it's become more and more extreme as it's gone along. But I mean, I, I don't know much about it, but I mean, how anyone can take it seriously, I don't know. Well, exactly. Um, I, we are coming up on the 45-minute mark. I, I do want to uh, thank you very much for doing this. Greatly appreciate it, uh, Reverend Korn. Uh, Michael, it was uh, enlightening, and I, I could I could spend four hours with you just diving in because I didn't even get to talk about my favorite book of yours, the Arthur Conan Doyle book. So, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> so I want to thank you very much for doing this. My pleasure. 
Thank you once again for listening to the Cross Border Interview Podcast. If you love this episode of the Cross Border Interview Podcast, head over to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast and subscribe, rate us, and leave us a review. All the links to our social media accounts are in the show notes or visit www.crossborderinterviews.ca. The Cross Border Interview Podcast was produced and edited by Miranda Brown and Associates Incorporated. Be sure to tune in for our next episode of the Cross Border Interview Podcast. Once again, thank you. Whoa!